instead of a Dharma talk, we, um, I entertain uh, suggestions of topics that you might want to discuss or questions that you might have. Um, like not to think of it as questions and answers because answers aren't that valuable, actually. Um, the questions are much more valuable than the answers. So I'm very happy to entertain whatever topics you'd like to reflect on. Please. And if you could just say your name, because I'd love to get to know your names. Andy, hi. And thank you, thank you so much for, for being here tonight for us. Um, it's really a pleasure. Um, and one of the things that you um, spoke about at the beginning of the evening was um, staying in your body when you're focused outside of it, to some degree, when you're talking with other people. And you talked about how that energy starts to come up and, and go up into your head and then out. And um, that's a very common occurrence for me. And um, I'm looking for... Uh, ways to uh, little keys and little um, cues for myself to to keep my body awareness when I'm um, focused outside or when I'm trying to uh, communicate um, and uh, I, I just think that's a very um, interesting and challenging area for us here in the West in particular um, where we everything gets so focused on, the exterior event. So thank you for the question. So I wonder um, if you've ever paid attention and understood how that happens. Um, well, sometimes, as a matter of fact, at one point when I was um, pursuing some kundalini uh, yoga, and uh, the teacher was uh, conducting some meditation afterwards, and I was kind of new to meditation at that point, and it was having this uh, sort of shifting uh, effect on me where I wasn't in my normal sense of consciousness of myself. And when I heard myself speak, um, sometimes it was like I wasn't really recognizing who it was that was speaking. Um, and so in that sense, I was more centered, um, or I had this different perspective about everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. um, it's just—it's almost a little frustrating when I find myself sort of leaving this body, bodily consciousness that I've that I've kind of worked to uh, uh, develop in yoga and meditation, and um, and so I so quickly kind of give it up, you know, when I'm when I'm. Uh, uh, communicating or talking with other people, or maybe not so much give it up, but sort of forget it. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to just say a few things uh, right now. And what I'd like you to do, and everybody can join in on this, is while I'm speaking, it's okay, he can keep the microphone for a while because he may, he may want him to say something. Um, so while I'm speaking right now, I'd like you to place... 90% of your attention, no, let's make it 98% of your attention on your body. 
And you can do that by um, feeling your feet, feeling your connection of the feet to the ground if you're on a chair, or feel the connection of the buttocks with the seat if you're on a cushion and the knees contacting the, the zabutan, the bottom cushion. And I want you to really listen to me, but I want you to pay, so only pay 2% of your attention to me. And really pay attention to that contact of the buttocks the contact of your hands, wherever they're touching, the contact of your feet. Notice how your body feels. As my voice enters your ear, can you notice what it's like for the the sound of the voice to hit the ear? What does that feel like? What is the actual experience of hearing? What's the actual experience not only of hearing with your ears, but actually receiving the vibration of what I'm saying with your entire body. What does it feel like to actually know how your body is responding or reacting to what I'm saying? Okay, so now I'd like to ask you a question. So were you able to put 98% of your attention on your body? You know, there was there was some nervous energy thro- uh, flowing through myself, and I um, wasn't able to divvy it up very well. Okay, so what 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 proportion do you think is there? Um, I, it seemed to waver between, say, fifty and ninety somewhere. Oh, beautiful. And could you hear every single word I said? Uh, I could. I could feel the vibrations. I could. I was more conscious of the. Uh, of the functioning of my ears, but I, um, but I probably couldn't repeat your words. But did you get the import of my words? Yes, yes, yes. The, the so, import was to make this, uh, make this attempt to, um, to have both and to um, Im- sort of embrace this fe- the feel- all the feelings at once. Kind of. Okay. And how was that for you? Um... It was kind of exciting. It was, uh, you know, it's uh, um, something I want to try and do more. Um, so this is beautiful, you know, because uh, so much of the time, it's such a, it feel, to me, maybe it's because I'm used to the instruction, because I give it a lot to myself as well as to others. Um, and it's such a simple instruction. And a lot of the time, what the, the um, well, instead of my telling you what you thought, is there anybody else who'd like to comment on what just happened, what they felt or what they noticed in the instructions and how it was for, for you to do what I instructed you to do? Just wait, because we're recording, so we don't need to get me. Thank you. Um, thank you. I first felt... And your name? Oh, I'm Ziggy. Hi, Ziggy. Thanks for being here. Um, when you first instructed to listen, I love, I love listening to people or teachers. I think that's a thing that I enjoy doing. So my first impulse is to... It was a great question because to just listen 
and not be in my body. When he instructed us to be in my body, I had an initial like, and I could feel that my body felt very heavy. And then as you kept talking about trying to balance both, um, I just felt, I know why I wanted to come back. I had been here for a loving kindness uh, day that you taught. And I think what I enjoy also, especially about teachers whom I enjoy, or people, is the vibration of what they're saying. I never thought about that. But the way you speak just, just, felt so good to me on another level that was beyond content. I took in the import mm-hmm. and the instruction, but I got something very precious that I never got before by being both receiving it on a body way. Also, my body lost that very heavy, heavy feeling, mm-hmm. thank goodness. <laughs> For the moment, anyway. I mean, I was feeling mm-hmm. the feeling with parts of it. Mm-hmm. But I also really received, and it was um, very special. So I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm explaining it. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. needed to tell you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, anyone else? Yes. Thank you. Your name? My name is Rupa. Rupa. And I really enjoyed the meditation very much. This is the second time I'm, I've been here with you. And it's been very, very nice. And when you said that one should feel how to feel the physical body, your feet on the floor, the buttocks and the seat, in the beginning I was focusing on it so much that I was not really able to listen to you. But then I realized, after I really started doing this, that what you said was just, I was more grounded. Mm-hmm. And I think by being grounded, I was focused on what you were saying. And your words then were not, they were not words, it was the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times when I'm not grounded and I don't know where I am, my thoughts are everywhere except where I am. Mm-hmm. So this really helped me a lot. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And you know, Rupa in Sanskrit or in uh, Pali means body. So, Thank beautiful. <laughs> so, so thank you, all, all three of you, Andy and Ziggy and Rupa, um, because I, I I think that that's what each one of you has said. It is really an understanding of what it means to be present in your body. And as you know, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness, right? That's what the Buddha taught, that you first start, you start with the body. And, and it's so smart because the body is the, ve- it's the vehicle, for, it's, it's kind of your tentacles for um, uh, interacting with the world. And so if you're out of it, out of the body, then you're missing so much of what's coming to you in terms of um, uh, signals about what's happening in the world, whether it's listening to someone or, um, or being aware of what's, what's happening in your environment. 
both of which are really important. So, so the listening, and I, I wanted you to do it because I wanted you to feel what it, the difference between listening with just your, your ear organ and listening with your full body. Because if we're only listening with the ear organ, we're missing so much information that's so valuable. And what you're doing is you're honoring the person to whom you're listening. Right? Because you're, you're giving them your full attention. If you're really in your body, then that person is, is receiving your, full, your fullest attention, what is totally possible for you in terms of giving them your attention. And if you think about uh, what happens in this world, this is an incredible gift. Because so much of the time we're half distracted. You know, somebody is saying something to us and we're texting or, you know, we're wondering what the weather is like or we're daydreaming about what happened yesterday. It's really hard to do that if you're in your body. Really hard to be out, to be distracted, to be doing something else other than listening to who is here right here and now. So if you, if you use the body as your first foundation of mindfulness, your first kind of entry into being here, and being present, your whole, the whole texture of your experience is going to shift, just as Ziggy said. You know, so suddenly, instead of just hearing words bouncing off of the ear organ, there was a full experience of what is actually here for me. What, is my, what am I sensitive to right now? And it's not just the tenor of my voice that's impacting her, but actually her whole receptacle, her whole receiving ability. She's, she's really feeling what she's feeling, rather than trying to understand, just as Rumi said, right? We're trying to get information, but actually there's a whole fountain of information that's already inside of us moving out. So instead of trying to grasp what's outside and bring it in, we're letting what's inside move out, and we're relating to the world in that way. So that's the magic and the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of being in a body. Right? It's here to teach us, just as everything else teaches us. So that's our first, um, our first uh, foundation, our first basis of mindfulness. So thank you very much for the question. My name's John. Hi, John. Nice to be here. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Um, I'm a little hesitant about uh, this topic or question, but uh, it's an opportunity for me to take advantage of it. Since this uh, retreat, meta retreat, I've, uh, I've been practicing pretty much on a daily basis. And uh, it's been quite wonderful. A uh, mix of metta and insight. Um, and, uh, you know, finding moments of real peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, very different from my previous practice. 
It is not. It's not. It's not. I'm not asking you. Uh, but it is grinning at times. And uh, it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's part of me. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, I have my life and I have some clear things that I can point to. Uh, but I'm very intrigued with the dichotomy between my practice. And sometimes I think about this and I move into my practice, not as like the top of the thing per se, but I try to become aware of it. But my meditation is not, is not, it's not like I'm getting some insight. And I let it go, let it goes. So it's an interesting dichotomy that I'm wishing it would you know, mm. uh, come up in some way or like an experience in my meditation. So how are you working with it? I'm going to the gym a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one way. And you know, I mean, I have a therapeutic outlet mm-hmm. uh, for it. You know, just really trying to just uh, sit with it you know, mm-hmm. to the rest mm-hmm. of my ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's, we're not talking about a one-off thing. So this is great news. This is wonderful. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and I know that sounds counterintuitive, but... Um, there and I have I have about three three different comments to make. The first is that when we do an and I'm happy to see you after the meta retreat too. Um, for those of you who don't know, I taught a meta retreat at um, Insight Meditation Society in February. So John, that's what John's alluding to. Meta means loving kindness. So it's a, it was a retreat where we practiced. Um, these practices of, of cultivating a heart of loving kindness for the whole week. So the first thing is that when we do metta, there's sometimes an expectation, and I know you've been to the metta retreat more than once, so I know that you're a relatively sophisticated practitioner with it, and yet um, we can have expectations about how we'll be transformed and what will happen and how it will happen. And yet, you know, the cultivation of loving-kindness, like all of the other meditation practices we do, is a mysterious process. It's mysterious in the sense that 
whatever we think, and you know, the Buddha said this, whatever, whatever, whatsoever you think, it is ever other than that. So I just want you to think about that for a second, a couple of seconds. Whatever you think, it's ever other than that. Whatever you think, it's ever other than that. So we rely on our conceptual ideas about how things are and about how things are going to be and what's going to develop and how they're going to develop. And what the Buddha is saying is that the mind is a great trickster, right? So the, the conceptual ideas of who we are, what we are, what's going to happen, how things are, we, you know, we can, you know, sometimes we have to rely on it because we don't have anything else to rely on. But most of the time we should rely on it with a really skeptical eye. So the understanding of loving kindness is that we feel love and we feel um, you know, sometimes neutrality, but mostly love towards even uh, difficulties and difficult people and difficult persons and difficult, difficult situations. And yet, in order for that to happen, there has to be a kind of purification. And as a matter of fact, the, the, um, the metta practice is, comes to us, the actual practice of metta, the Buddha taught loving-kindness, but the actual practice that has been passed down to us now is actually a practice that was um, taught by a monk named Buddha Gosa a thousand years after the Buddha. And it's in a book called The Path of Purification, the Vasudhimaga. And that Path of Purification, it's a, it's a very apt name for it, because in fact, what this whole practice, whether it's Vipassana meditation or um, jhana practice or shamatha meditation or metta meditation or compassion, any of the Brahma-vihara meditations, are all a way of purifying the mind and heart. And what we have is purification and purity. Periods of purification and periods of purity. So you can be doing the metta practice and feeling those feelings of purity during the actual practice, and yet be in the fire of purification while you're going about your life. And those fires of purification are a way of bringing up what we most need to see in ourselves. How can we purify ourselves if we don't understand what it is we're purifying? And I think I said at the Metta Retreat, and I said on the day long here, you know, in that Vasudhimaga, in the Path of Purification, Buddha Gosa instructs that we that before we do anything with the metta practice as we as we know it, is we sit down and review the disadvantages of hatred and the advantages of attaining patience. Right? He doesn't say love, he says patience. So so the metta practice actually starts with that. It actually starts with understanding what hatred does in our mind-bodies. And we review the disadvantages, and sometimes what I'll do when I teach metta is have people first do that, is look at a situation in which you came, in which you came to it 
with some sense of aversion or aggression or hatred or any version of that, anger as you're calling it. And then look at how that turned out. Right? And invariably, we'll say when we do that, this could have turned out better. Right? So we begin to understand deeply, experientially, not because somebody told us, but because we look at our lives and we look at our experience and we begin to understand the disadvantages of hate. And then we review another situation in which, instead of aversion, we met it with patience. And we see how that turned out. Right? And usually what we notice with that is that because we come to a situation with patience, whatever reactivity we have to situations is lessened. Because if we, if we let things lie for, for a while and we're patient with them, what we'll notice is that initial period of reactivity that's tinged with aversion or hatred shifts. The hatred lessens or it dissolves. And then the patience arrives or, or it emerges. And with that, the reactivity that we originally had is transformed into responsiveness. Right. So, so that's, the, so that's the, the second thing, is that uh, there's purification in the sense of what's actually driving us, the motivations that we have and the feelings that we have come to the surface. We see them. So that's the first part. And then the second part is we're given some instructions as to how to work with it, which is to review it. How, what's this like? What happens when I act out of this? Or I even think out of this? Or I, or I form intentions out of this? What happens? And the third thing I'd like to say is that it's actually possible to not take your anger personally. Because what begins to happen is we have these feelings, and I, and I so congratulate you in being able to feel the feelings of, of hatred or anger, to, to identify them as that, and to restrain yourself from, from expressing it. Right? But there's a deeper practice that follows on to that, which is understanding anger as uh, not mine, not who I am. That anger comes and goes and has very specific feelings in the body and stories in the mind. Very specific. And so by um, getting some distance from your anger, getting some distance from the hatred, getting some distance from the impatience, what we start to do is to see oh, this is not mine. This is a set of, a constellation of feelings in the body. You know, tightness in the chest, tightness in the belly, heat in the head, throbbing, uh, pulsing, um, shortness of breath, however it, it manifests in your own body. These are impersonal things happening. These are not personal. Right? And so we see we can actually play with anger arising in the body and the mind. We can notice the stories. What's the story about? 
and we can sit still for it rather than trying to move away from it. You know, and I, you said you go to the gym and, you know, that's, that's probably skillful, that's fine. But you can also sit in it. Sit in the fire of your anger. Or I shouldn't even say your anger. Sit in the fire of anger. And notice what it is. Because what we call anger is a concept, is an idea about all of these feelings that we're having in the body, stories in the mind, and emotions in the heart. So can you actually be with that? Can you stay with that in a way that uh, where you can begin to understand the constellation of events and experiences that are being categorized in one kind of gross concept, anger. And you can use that gross concept as something that's not yours, that's universal, and begin to understand what happens in the world when the world is driven by anger, by this impersonal, universal anger. What happens? And we know what happens. There was a proliferation of guns, there was a proliferation of wars, territory, people wanting to um, blow people up, fear, all of that, all of that comes out of those, that constellation of feelings that is so unpleasant that we want to push it away and somehow figure out how to get it up and out. And so what we do is we direct it outward. Right. Or sometimes we'll direct it inward, which really then bottles it up. And it has to go somewhere, so it will explode eventually. So instead of ignoring it, or thinking that, um, you know, that maybe your practice isn't working, or being disappointed in yourself for these, this constellation of feelings to happen, to really sit in the fire of it. In a way, you know, your, your, your Vipassana practice as well as your Metta practice really prepares you beautifully to do that. Totally beautifully to do that. Because it allows you patience. So you can allow all of these feelings to come and go. You can allow them to come up and out without being expressed outward and... and um, being destructive. And the fourth way, the fourth comment I'd like to make, and the final comment about it, is that there's a teaching in the Eightfold Path, which is the path of the, the Buddha recommended for the end of suffering. And that teaching is that one of the steps on the path is effort. And that there are four great efforts that we can make, that we First, we balance our efforts so that we're neither tight nor too loose, but we're just right in our energy. That's the first, that's the first instruction. And then there's a the second instruction that gives these four great efforts. And the first effort is to uh, cultivate the mind so that what is wholesome and has not yet arisen in the mind can arise in the mind. And the second is if what is wholesome does arise after we've cultivated the ground for its arising, that we maintain it so that it grows and develops. And the third effort 
is to prevent honorism unwholesome from arising in the mind. And the fourth is where when the that's unsuccessful and the unwholesome actually does arise in the mind to abandon it. So there are a lot of different techniques for abandoning it. But this is an, a specific effort that you can make. Right? And I've, I've spoken before, you know, previously about these, the, the way to do that is to really work with it as an impersonal arising. And, you know, just to, um, just to tell you, I've, I've worked with, with, I worked with a, a woman in a prison and I used to uh, teach uh, Dharma in a prison, in a maximum security prison. And I actually had a star student who told me that she was in prison because of her anger. And I, I gave her this instruction about when anger arises, to see it as impersonal and not as yours, but really just as anger arising. And it was the, it was the most amazing transformation I've seen. She died about a year later. But in that year, it was just the most amazing thing to see how she had taken that instruction and actually put it into practice. And it was the most incredible transformation I've seen of a human being. So, it, you know, so it's, and she told me she was there in that prison because of anger. So it's a, it's a totally, as the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Abandon what is unwholesome and cultivate what is wholesome. If it were not possible to cultivate the wholesome, I would not ask you to do it. If it were not possible to abandon the unwholesome, I would not ask you to do it. So I ask you to do it. How are you doing? How are you all doing? Okay? It's a little warm in here, isn't it? Do you feel it warm? Hmm? Sorry? I didn't hear you, Andy. Oh, you're, so you're not warm. Okay. I'm wearing a sweater. Yes, please. Um, hi, my name is Matt. Hi, Matt. Um, I have a very difficult decision to make in my life. And I don't know how to make it. Would you like to say more? Uh, there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. How does that feel in your body? Um, like a dense ball that's right here and kind of radiates out. Very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And how have you worked with it? Um, I also go to the gym a lot. <laughs> There's a trend here. 
I do uh, metta meditation. I, I have been doing... Have you met John? <laughs> Hi, John. You have a lot in common. I have been doing Vipassana. And I actually came to the evening that you did a month ago here that you, that you devoted to metta. And I decided since then to try just to do metta every day. Um, um, talking with trusted people about it. About, about, this about decision, the decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, writing about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Thinking. Mm-hmm. Lying awake. Mm. What do you do when you lie awake? Um, sometimes my mind races with all the stories and sometimes I, I'm just breathing and looking at the ceiling or having my eyes shut or Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes my body is tense, sometimes it's relaxed. So what would you like to have happen right now? So you're feeling an obstacle? I'm feeling a little tongue-tied right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you just stay with whatever you're feeling in your body and describe it for me right now? Well, I feel that fear. I feel it in my ear, my solar plexus. I feel it in my arms. I feel on the edge of crying. Mm. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of sadness too. Uh. So, when you say you feel it, what is it you feel? Um, I guess great uncertainty about the future. Uh So what does uncertainty feel like or look like for you? Um, I guess like the possibility of great loss. Possibility of loss. And when you say that, how does that feel? There's a tiny bit of relief in naming it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision involves another person too, and there's a, there's also I also feel a tremendous love. Mm-hmm. With this mm-hmm. So it, have you have you wept? Mm-hmm. 
And what does it feel like when you weep? It's usually when the fear goes away, I feel more certain that I find myself weeping. When you feel more certain. And what does certainty feel like? Like the love without the fear. The love without that. Those very uncomfortable sensations, bodily sensations and mental sensations that I've been describing. So are you sure that certainty? feels like it in those moments. Mm-hmm. And what's the um, and and what's what's the story in that moment of that certainty? Um, knowing that it's possible to stay connected. So there's a feeling of connection and a possibility of keeping that connection. So it's really not about certainty, is it? It's about connection. Nor is it about uncertainty, but more a fear of loss. Because because when we when we make these kinds of polarities where we feel as if, you know, there's a state that we're in that's uncomfortable and unacceptable and makes us nervous or sad or fearful. And we feel as if, oh, there's another state that I can get to where none of that will be true. None of that is true. Because even in this even in the state that you call certainty, there's never 100% certainty ever in life. Unless you, somebody here has experienced that, where they're completely certain about what's going on and what's going to happen. So, so much of of, what this practice and these teachings are about is not really getting rid of the uncertainty or the fear or the discomfort of loss and the, um, the yearning that comes with that, but really shifting our relationship to it. Because good luck with trying to get rid of uncertainty in life. In every moment, we have no idea what's going to happen next. None. Anything could happen at any time. Life can change on a dime. It can change with a phone call. It can change from one minute to the next. Something happens and your entire life changes. So as human beings, we're constantly living with that sense of uncertainty. You know, what's the first noble truth of the Buddha? There is dukkha. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is uncertainty. There is fear. There is loss. There's all of that that we have to cope with. But he didn't end there and said, too bad for all of you, right? I'm getting out of here, right? He didn't say that. He said, you know, we can look at what the cause is. 
and we can see that it's possible to end this dukkha or this suffering, and here's a way to do it. So part of the way to do it is to actually understand first. And when he said there's dukkha, or there's unsatisfactoriness, he also said dukkha should be understood. So we need to stand under that. We need to understand deeply what this unsatisfactoriness is about in being human beings. And buried in that is the jewel of the liberation from dukkha, liberation from suffering or from unsatisfactoriness. Because what happens is the relationship to it shifts. We're, We're no longer victims of it because we understand it. We understand how it happens we, because we're, our powers of observation give us all of the information that we need to understand it. And it's a process, it's a journey, it's not a destination. And what we see is that we're clinging to a particular thing or a particular idea or a particular desire that we have for things to either stay the same, which is good luck with that because where, you know, the tide is constantly coming in and going on in life. There's nothing that's static, nothing that's staying the same. Everything is changing all the time. And so when we're suffering, one of the things we can look at is what's needing to change that I'm holding on to. Hold on as hard as you can. What are you going to do? You're going to get rope burned. Right? So, so in paying attention, what you start to see is what's impermanent, what's changing that I don't want to have change? What's changing, what's impermanent that I think I need to hold on to as hard as I can? And then we take, you know, we take it all very personally. But these are universal experiences that we all have. That's why we can all sit in a room together and reflect on Dharma and contemplate Dharma and we all nod our heads and say, yeah, I get that, right? It's because these are universal experiences. So this experience of loss is very poignant and, 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 and difficult, but it's workable. And so instead of trying to hold back the tide and make something happen the way we think it's gonna, it should happen, we let things unfold. And there's beauty in that. Because now we are uh, aligned with the way things are. We're aligned with the fact that things are moving and shifting and changing. And yeah, sometimes they're going to change the way we don't want them to. There's no doubt about that. But our relationship to that, because it shifts, there's an opening, the heart opens, the body relaxes, the mind relaxes. It doesn't have to tell its stories about why we should hold on so tight. And then the decision will make itself. I I pray and trust that the decision will make itself. It's 
you know, it's, it's that poem from Rumi. It's not about taking in more information so you can make, a, you know, a, a wise, rational decision. No, it's fully meeting it with your body and your mind and your heart so that whatever you decide to do comes from that, comes from that fullness of meeting life just as it is, right where you are. Not some idealization of how it should be or how it should stay or where it should go, but a real bowing to the unfolding of life. It's beautiful. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if what will happen may be more tragic or more beautiful. And But they're both beautiful. Even in tragedy sometimes, there is some redeeming quality, even though it's difficult to meet. It's difficult sometimes to be in life with all of this difficulty. And I think we're living in, in pretty difficult times. So we all have seem to have an overabundant share of the difficulty, of the sadness, of the tragedy. But we don't know how things are going to shift and change. But we do know they always will. Right? And how do we meet this too? This too? This too? This too? Whatever it is. That's the, that's the dance of life. Right? And we're dancing, we're not static, we're not holding still. Because if we are, then life is passing us by because it is changing and moving and dynamic. And yeah, things happen that we don't like. Okay, so how will we work with it? How will we work with it? That's all we can do, that's all we can contemplate. We can't do anything else. So open, let the decision tell you what it wants to do, rather than you manipulating it into some result that you think will be the best result for you. Dance with what's here. That's the best you can do. And may it be beautiful. And cry, weep. That too is beautiful. Thank you. So we've come to the end of the evening together. Thank you for those beautiful questions. And all of the questions point to um, our deep relationship with being alive. And the inquiry that we all have is to how to best live this life of um, joy and sorrow, 
and praise and blame and gain and loss. And we will come here to reflect on that together, to see if we can meet life with wisdom and compassion rather than as victims. So we are indeed fortunate to encounter teachings that give us some suggestion that is uh, wise, difficult, but wise as to how to meet these exigencies and vicissitudes of life. And we keep coming back because we notice, see what I mean? Because we notice that when we're able to work in the way that we're um, committed to work, that the quality of our lives begin to anneal to wisdom and compassion. And even though life may be difficult, that there is a basic happiness that comes with our ability to uh, cultivate these qualities of heart, wisdom and compassion. And from this um, wisdom and compassion, the joy that arises is not because we have freedom from the storm, but because we discover the sure heart's release, freedom in the midst of the storm. So, having heard these teachings, having inquired and reflected on them, we have created a field of merit. And we feel this field of merit in which we are all joined together. And so we're reminded that we are in an inescapable network of mutuality, as Martin Luther King said that we are tied together in a single garment of destiny. We are in a net together out of which we we cannot fall. And so this field of merit that has been generated tonight from our practice and from our reflections, we scatter to all four corners of the earth, dedicating all of this merit to the well-being, the happiness, the freedom, the ease, and the health of all beings everywhere, without exception. We include every being in our, on our planet, in our galaxy, every being. And we send these deep wishes for their happiness. 
and we contribute the merit that we have generated to this happiness. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.